Last week we talked a lot about evolution and, um, you know, coming up from the animals and all of that. And I, because I usually take two weeks on these classes, I never really got that anywhere near what the subject was. <laughs> but uh, Swami's uh, approach to this whole subject is so all-inclusive that, that you really do have to spend a long time on things that seem quite irrelevant because they're all moving toward certain strict ideas. So what he's really coming to is, um, after talking about such a long time about what the nature of creation is and how everything in the universe is moving toward self-realization, there's, there's this break in the evolutionary process, which is the point at which we get a human body. And it's, it's like everything just happens on its own. This is like this great dance of creation where everything has been manifested out from spirit and is gradually dancing its way back, you know, through the animal forms and the plant forms and the rock forms and the earthquakes and everything. But when it reaches the point of the human, Swami puts it in such a simple way. He, he has such a good way of saying these things. He said, because at the human level, man can experience... Um, his own happiness in a personal way and be conscious of experiencing that in a way that a dog or a cat can't objectify, the idea suddenly occurs to him that maybe I can always feel this way. And and so the, the quest begins for us to sort of always feel this certain kind of uh, ego-induced, sense-induced kind of happiness. You know, a puppy eats and he's really eager to eat again, but he can't objectively sort of calculate how he can manage to get a better job and get more money and be able to, you know, have uh, that lobster more often or whatever it might be. He might enjoy it every time it comes, but he can't really start thinking and planning, sort of making his world work in a certain way. So what happens to human beings, the way Swami describes it there, and I mean, this is like, this is our personal history. This is not archetypes. This is like our personal history. At the point at which we become liberated from this whole cycle, we can look back and remember all of this happening to us. And the way he describes it is you sort of go through all these lifetimes, five to eight million lifetimes, I think it is, to reach the human level. Of course, some of those lives are short because some of the creatures' bodies that you inhabit don't last a long time, but some, you know, live a long lifespan. So, I mean, the time frame is, well, just unimaginable. We, do, we don't even know how to put ourselves into that reality. The only fact is we don't have to. But then you finally get to the human level and the way Swami describes it is often you, you just hang out. You sort of reach this plateau and all of a sudden we have the capacity to directly influence our experience of pleasure. And we just start wanting to do that. And he he was saying also that animals can't develop disbalanced appetites. They're they're run by instinct. But human beings have the capacity to just find all sorts of ways in which to involve themselves and and, um, perverse ways of, of sort of twisting the human experience and then trying to grasp um, pleasure and excitement out of all kinds of things that uh, would never occur to animals to do. I mean, just as a very simple fact, you know, the human beings are the only people who are the only creatures who make war on their own kind on a regular basis. You know, 
animals will fight each other for dominance, um, but but human beings will actually you know have these calculated, extremely complex, very expensive, long drawn out fights with one another that just go on and on and on. We just kill each other on sort of a regular, a formal and an informal basis. And if you think about, you know, anything that's remotely natural, um, such, a, uh, such an action doesn't have any um, natural base in, in who we are. I mean, it, people have to be trained, both in order to have the courage to, to be shot and to kill others. And it becomes like a, one of those Maya confusing ideas that, that people think they need to, to master these things. Now, it's not that no um, positive benefit comes from it because of courage and self-sacrifice in the name of a cause you believe in, but still you can just see how, how odd it is. But when we, once we get caught up in that, and then also Swamiji talks about this, and this is a very, another extremely important aspect just of being a human being and understanding, and this is the, form of, the force of maya and the force of Satan, which is that there's, there is this counter force that's always going on that we're trying to push, we're being pulled up towards superconsciousness, but there is an equal force that is trying to keep us from going there. And I don't, even though I've read countless explanations of it, it's still always just a little bit difficult to understand that it's just, that it's really there. That there really is this... Um, restless energy. And the way Swami describes it in this particular lesson, which is very, very interesting, is that he, he, he talks about we can't, unless we're very calmly centered in ourselves, it's very difficult to discriminate between the habitual... Uh, he, he says, we, you know, when we come up into the human body, we carry with us um, the, a lot of the imprint of having been an animal. You know, a lot of the the appetites that are more animalistic, food and sexuality and uh, just base appetites, sleeping in the sun, you know, just not, not the refinement for which a human being is, care- is, is uh, capable of. But we, ha- we have that imprint in us. And um, what was I going to say there? And it takes, it takes a very sensitive inner stillness to be able to hear the other reality, which is the, the, tran- the, the, the reality that transcends the physical. That's what the superconscious is. We live in this physical body and we're very, very close to it. And all of the um, forces that make up the physical body are always influencing us. Swami made a very interesting statement to me once that he didn't explain at great length. But he said oftentimes when people think, you know, some big karmic experience is happening to them, there's really just some physical imbalance that's causing a difference in experience for them. And then they project from that to all these mental states. But often it's caused first by physical imbalances. You know, um, all of the things, aging and everything like that. But let me, let me want to what I was going to say. Oh, it's self-evident that we're profoundly influenced by living in a physical body. I mean, you don't need anything other than than puberty to prove that to us. You know, I'm going to tell you a story. This is actually a true story. 
there was this boy, he, was, he, lived, he lived in our community at that time, and he was outside playing basketball with one of his friends. He was about 11 at the time. And uh, he was outside playing basketball in the evening, on a summer night, and then he started coming into his mother. And he said, Mom, what time is it? You know, and it was like 8 o'clock. And then 15 or 20 minutes later, Mom, what time is it? And he would go out and play more basketball. And he was playing with a couple of the older kids. And finally, his mother said, why are you keep asking me? And then he named one of the older kids, because my friend so-and-so said that puberty starts at 12. (laughs) 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 He was extremely anxious to grow up. (laughs) But, you know, we all know that when that physical change comes over us, our whole mental attitude, everything shifts. Because we're just very, very strongly influenced. We just come into this other reality. If the body gets ill, um, you know, if, if a, a limb is amputated, if the heart begins to malfunction, you know, it's very, very hard for us to keep our consciousness above the physical. We're always being pulled backwards into that as our dominant reality. That's sort of the imprint of, of having been, having come up through all these other stages. But equally present in us, and in a sense uh, more present because ultimately dominant, but equally present in us is this other transcendent reality that is the sense of self that has never been born and has never died, and as Swamiji says, is as old as God. Because we were, we were manifested at the beginning of creation, and we live in these bodies, but our actual individuality and our I-ness is, is as old as creation itself, is eternal. It's a really remarkable thing because we're, to, to just meditate on how extremely caught we are in the idea that I am what I see and what I can remember experiencing. But coexisting with us, within us, at all times, really more real than anything else is the, the unchanging presence of spirit, the Christ within. We are the reflection of the infinite. But we don't discern that on a regular basis simply because our consciousness is, is oscillating too much. It's just caught in all of these experiences that are happening. And the power of Satan and the power of Maya essentially is to keep our consciousness oscillating. Because when it finally becomes still and we perceive that other reality, then we're not, we don't participate in the same way. The whole dynamic shifts. And that force is always there. Now, the point of saying that is not in any respect to make us nervous or anxious, but it's really defining for us that if we don't consciously and constantly put out a, a, a dynam- use our dynamic God-given will to push toward Satchitananda and away from that downward pull of subconsciousness, the subconsciousness will take us. And, and you know, that's just the, the simple essence of it. It's not even, uh, you know, it's not, it's not really bad news, it's just the news. And, and so Swami is trying to talk here, and his subject is material success. But so many people's expectation of success doesn't involve that really 
conscientious, constant effort to resist the downward pulling energy and to move forward. And Swami makes a a point in here talking about drona as the power of habit. And the power of habit is a very interesting key here. And and in the Mahabharata, which is the symbolic story of the soul's battle, drona is the guru of both the Pandavas, who are the soul qualities, and the Kauravas, who are the negative qualities. And drona trains them both when they're young. But then when they grow up, Drona stays on the side of the Kauravas. Even though he was the guru of both, he stays on the side of the Kauravas. And, and they, they write in here that it, it's at the beginning of our quest for the spiritual life. You know, we, um, um, let me we phrase it differently. Drona represents, in, in his training, Drona, Drona represents the power of habit. And a master makes the interesting statement, you know, that it, when, the, when the final battle comes between the forces of good and the forces of evil, habit always sides with, with the downward pulling energy. Because superconsciousness itself is not a product of habit. You can't, you can't have the habit of superconsciousness. And he puts it so simply because superconsciousness is always creative and is always spontaneous and is ever new and ever changing. And the nature of habit itself is that it's a, pad, a repeating pattern. But then he does say that good habits are like a thorn taking out another thorn. That if we have the good habit, for example, of regular meditation, of right practice, of right techniques, it's not that that habit itself um, m- makes us free but the regular practice of right habits gives us the capacity to become still. And when we become still, then we perceive the power of superconsciousness, and it's the power of superconsciousness that really changes us. This is a very important point. Last night we were talking in a, in a different group about the difference in what Master is teaching and what Ananda is teaching and a whole lot of popular thought these days. You know, there's a whole lot of thought these days of let's transform the planet, let's all get together and make things better. You know, that you, every so often you see these movements that come through, we're all going to sort of get together and make the world different. Everybody's going to do it together. And, and sometimes these movements include the concept of God, but usually they very, very conscientiously don't partly because they're trying to be very inclusive and there's a lot of people who just don't want to hear about God. But when you don't talk about God, even if you're sort of talking about in vague ways about some force, the fundamental energy that you're working with, that people are working with, is the idea that we can just get the human ego focused enough and that somehow by focusing the human ego according to the good habits will transcend um, the downward pulling force on this planet. But it's, it, that's an impossibility because as long as we are acting as if we are the ones acting, we are still caught in that oscillating field of maya because anything that even if we say you're my brother, you're my sister, everyone in the world is my brother and sister. That's certainly a higher octave than I'm in it only for myself. 
But it's still me and you, it's still you and me, it's still me doing it. Even right actions, as long as we ourselves still think we're doing them, we're still caught in that level of maya. And as long as we're caught in that level of maya, it's going to go up and it's going to go down. Plus, it never really turns us toward the actual creative source of goodness. It's good habits, which is better than bad habits, but it's still just habits. It doesn't turn us to this cessation of personal involvement altogether and puts us in tune with this higher force. And so, I mean, I certainly think such movements are good, or I should say better than nothing, but that the steadfast resistance to the idea that really, in the end, the ego is nothing, And in the end, no matter really how smart we are or anything, really nothing is going to happen unless we surrender that ego to super-consciousness. And that's the real change that has to take place. And that's really what Master brought. Master, from the very beginning, talked about God. He talked about Guru. He talked about discipleship. He talked about, you know, transcending the self. He he never minced words or spoke politically correct about that. He just gave that message. And we, we sometimes have a temptation to tone it down a little to sort of make everybody else's vocabulary match ours, but it's a very different message in its subtlety. Because ultimately, and Swami's talking about this right here just in terms of uh, material success, it's that intuitive power of superconsciousness guiding us that really shifts our consciousness and is really the secret of success. No real lasting success is possible unless it brings in that level. And of course, anybody who succeeds at all on some level is drawing on that intuition. So what Swamiji is trying to bring us to mind here is that if we want to consciously become successful, and the the methods he writes here of material success are the same as the methods of spiritual success. And he mentions that the methods of spiritual failure are the same as the methods of, of uh, material failure. That it's just success and failure, no matter what you set your mind to, are a matter of being able to tune in. And in tuning in, I was talking about this on Sunday, actually, you know, to be able to, to feel a different vibration and then have both the discrimination and the concentration to stay with that vibration. Swamiji um, commented once in write, about writing music, and he's often, sometimes he analyzes his song, Cloisters, Long I've Called You, My Lord, Long I've Called You, and he shows us note by note sort of what the inspiration was and how um, the, the climb, a certain point in that song where, where the, the the longing of the devotee for the vision of God is very intense. He shows how if it, if it was an emotional longing, the note would have gone just a little bit higher. But by keeping the note down just a little bit, it's like the longing remains more inward and doesn't become, um, it doesn't become out of control. And how the song itself doesn't, doesn't exactly resolve, but ends with a sort of question mark. So that one is still reaching out for this infinite. I mean, just little tiny touches like that. But, but in, t- in talking about that in music in general, he says, How 
how often he said uh, a popular, a very, very popular song, you know, songs that have really captured the human heart because they really say something, have like a, a great first line. And the whole song is almost built on the, on the first line. It's like he said, many people receive a touch of intuition. He said, but it's, it's very difficult to hold yourself at that level through the entire creative process. And I mean, even more fascinating example, um, years ago, the, the popular singer Donovan wrote a, a melody for his version of the words of Brother, Son, Sister Moon of, uh, yes, Brother, Son, Sister Moon, the Canticle of the Creatures by St. Francis. And uh, it's okay. And then Swami Kriyananda also wrote a song, and he said the, the first few notes of them are the same. Very interesting. But then Donovan just took her, his in a sort of a more wandering, less focused way, and Swami's, you know, stays very much in, in keeping with that first line. It's, it's, you know, it really tells you they were really tuned into the same thing, but by training, Swami knew how to hold on to that and not, and not allow um, either low energy or the interfering waves of emotion to cause him to drift away from that. Now, in terms of our efforts to be successful, and this whole chapter is called The Balance Between Work and Meditation, what Swami is trying to express through this whole chapter is the simple fact that the more powerfully we can learn to hold our energy centered on superconsciousness, the more our success is guaranteed. Because every time we slip away from that, you know, then we just start laboring in the guesswork of maya. And every time we can bring our energy back to center, then we can be working with the certainty of superconsciousness. He has such a marvelous line here, and this is really also worth contemplating. Um, he says, this is about habit and about drona. Um, the power of habit does not participate actively on the side of goodness. This is going from the Mahabharata. The best that a good habit can do is help to open one's consciousness to this... I'll better wait till whoever it is is finished. The best that a good habit can do is help to open one's consciousness to the descent of superconsciousness into it. Okay? Habit helps that process... I love the way he says this, by not resisting it. It puts it in such a, a, a turned out way, you know, because the force of superconsciousness is the actual natural flow. But the ego works to resist that natural flow. This is the fundamental way of looking at things that spirituality is natural and it is our own and we merely realize it, we don't have to create it. Um, I, I quoted recently, uh, speaking of the first line of Master's poem, Samadhi, and it says, Vanish the veils, the, the, the obscuring presence, vanish the veils of light and shade. He doesn't say light and darkness, he says light and shade. And shade is something blocking the light, isn't that so? I can shade my eyes from this light, and it has no effect at all on the light, but it has a strong effect on whether I'm perceiving or experiencing that light. So he's saying what vanishes are the two veils 
I mean, this is even beyond creation. Light itself is vanished and everything that resists the light is also gone. I mean, you're transcending even light, the dual forces. But I, I contemplated a lot that word shade and his choice of pairing light with shade instead of light with darkness. So he said, habits, habit helps that process by not resisting it. Good habits. It, instead of pulling us away from that descent of superconsciousness, it cooperates with us. It is the superconscious which actively guides the sincere devotee's life. It's just a really interesting phrase. It is the superconscious which actually actively guides. Where, you know, the, the, the trick about inward guidance is the fact that we have many different voices inside us. And so it's not just a question of listening inwardly, which is the first step to just letting everybody on the planet run your life for you, but it's also listening with sufficient um, clarity and stillness that you can hear the difference between subconscious and superconscious promptings. And it, it isn't that hard uh, once you begin to realize that merely because I feel it strongly it does not mean that I, it's a superconscious thought. And one of the best ways you know is by the fruits. And what you, you work backwards. You work backwards from following many different promptings and seeing which ones bear fruit and then you, can, you gradually begin to be able to tell in advance what's really going to work. Okay. It is the superconscious which actively guides the sincere devotee's life. Good habits, therefore, such as daily meditation, these are what he considers good habits, remembrance of God and inwardly chanting his name, are beneficial primarily for the fact that they invite the superconscious to take part in our struggles. That's a lovely word. They invite the superconscious. Because you see, you know how every week in Sunday service we sing that song, You Remain Our Friend? Um, Even though eternally rejected, you remain our friend. That's a very strange phrase. We we use that, that's the spoken part. Though eternally rejected, you remain our friend. Swami wrote that song to describe the crucifixion of Christ and the, the attitude that Christ had in that moment, which was, here he had come again, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would, have, I would gather thee in as a, a mother gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. So, you know, time after time, misguided souls refuse to accept the grace that's offered, but the grace remains um, available. But that simple thought that these good habits invite superconsciousness in. Um, years ago, when Swamiji was actually teaching a course in San Francisco, when he introduced what he called superconscious living, which is a course that we teach here too sometimes, and he was first teaching it in this big campaign, um, and you know, to make a fairly long story, not too long. Um, He was also recording an album of chants and I was in San Francisco and I was running the recorder for him when he did the recordings. And he did it late at night after the other classes were over. And one night he was trying to record and I could not make the machine work. I have no idea why it wouldn't work. It just, it was, you know, one of those reel-to-reel tapes. This was like in the 70s. And I just, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't record. I didn't know why. 
And, you know, time passed, and he meditated for a while, and then he sort of changed into his pajamas, and then he was just waiting to start, and I couldn't make it work. And finally, I just said, Divine Mother, I'm embarrassed how long it took me to get to this point. I said, Divine Mother, I don't know what's going on here. If you want him to be able to record this, you have to help me. And then I unplugged every connection. I mean, I didn't know what else to do. I unplugged every connection, and I put them back together. I put them back exactly as they had been. I just took them apart and put them together. And the thing worked. (laughs) And he said, what did you do? I said, I asked Divine Mother to help me, sir, that's all. And so then the next night or the night after that, he was giving this big lecture about superconscious living and many aspects of it. And he asked me to stand up and, you know, to tell the audience my experience. And I walked up to the microphone. I said, what experience? I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, the recording the other night. So I talked about how I kept trying to solve the problem. And I made a number of phone calls. I wasn't able to reach anyone. No one was able to help me. I looked at the instruction book. I just did all the things that a person would do. But I really didn't ask for divine help. And then I suddenly thought to ask for divine help. And as soon as I asked for divine help, it was like that was the whole purpose of the exercise. And uh, my final message to that audience was, you know, these, are, these teachings are extremely powerful and very effective, but they won't work unless you use them. And to remember at the time when you're trying to solve the problem in a way that is more than just uh, lip service, you know, in a way that actually connects your vibration with the higher vibration. And in my desperation, I really did. I, I've learned since then, you know, I've, I've done an, a fair amount of writing in the last number of years, and it's taken me longer to, to come to this than I'm, I'm proud to admit. But many times, when I just can't seem to figure out what to say, I just stop. I say, Master, what are we trying to say here? And then the next thing I know, two hours have passed and the whole thing is written. You know, it's like, I don't exactly know what shifts, but it's like there's the point at which there's a very sincere remembrance of, I'm not doing this alone. And that's why Swami, Swami told me when I was struggling so hard to write, and he's, he sort of said, I don't know how to help you. He said, I've never had writer's block. Never. He's written a hundred books. But he never has it because he never tries to do it alone. I mean, he just writes, he just sits, and he says, well, Master, what shall we say? He said the only time he ever had it when he was, was when he was thinking about himself. Well, you see, that's the practice of good habits. Meditation, God, remembrance, chanting God's name. What does that do? That puts us in right relationship to a higher reality and diminishes the sense of self. And that's the only invi- that's the invitation. The invitation is the recognition that I'm not alone here, and that I'm really trying to do this in conversation with you. And of course, we can do that over and over again. And sometimes it's more successful than others. And this is the whole practice: is that we just have to keep chipping away at that that deeply subconsciously held conviction that that I, the ego, am really in charge. You know, and this is all this, this is what this whole chapter has been about, how long it takes us to get to the point where we have the human ego and can really pull it into ourselves and how habituated we are to considering that a virtue. 
and how really subtle it is now to lift ourselves beyond it. But that's the whole key to success because that puts us with superconsciousness and then that's where everything creative comes. And then he says, and I love this, it is the superconscious that actively opposes and eventually dissolves our worldly tendencies. It is superconsciousness that banishes maya. I... Um, in the autobiography of a yogi, there's a really interesting phrase. It's a quote from Swami Shankara, Adi Shankara. And he says that rituals will not um, liberate you because rituals are not the opposite of delusion. You know, a- outward ritual, doing a-, a religious observance, you know, even meditating per se, is not the opposite of maya. The opposite of maya is superconsciousness. And any of those activities are the good habits that invite the superconsciousness to come in, but it's the presence of the superconsciousness that actually breaks maya's hold on us. And that is why everyone who advances at all spiritually feels that it, I didn't do it, it was grace that did it. Because that's how you actually experience it. And I'm sure all of you have had that, those moments. I, you know, I can't, I can't count thousands of them. But I, could, I've, I can struggle and struggle and struggle. And I have literally, I mean, one dramatic instance that I've talked to you about, I just had a very wrong attitude in a relationship. It went on for more than 20 years. And, you know, I just worked with it and I worked with it, but it was just there and I would just resist it and then I would fall into it and then I would be upset and then I would start again. And, and one day, I just really had had it and I really had to face the fact that I really enjoyed having this wrong attitude. You know, it, it made me... I, I liked being self-righteously angry, which was essentially what the quality was, that... It made me feel special, <laughs> you know, whatever that it does. And, and really looking at that and really having to admit how I felt in the same moment, I really wanted to repudiate it because it was appalling to me to have to really see that. And in that desire to repudiate it, I just asked for divine help in a very different way than I ever had. And it went away. And it never came back. I mean, I've had better and worse moments even still, but essentially it dissolved. You know, the the core was gone. And I didn't do anything. I really felt that grace came in and took it away. There was no other words for it. You know, I was on the edge of recognizing the worst about myself, but something happened and I invited superconsciousness in. I mean... And any time that I've, I've ever done anything well, it's always such a joke to be complimented because the irony of it is, if you did it well, there's always a wonderful sense of not having been present when it happened. And then everyone says, oh, that was so good, that was so well done, that was... Bleh. It was like, it's a no-brainer to say, well, yeah, it was great, but you know, there's just... You hear Swami Kriyananda, especially when people don't know him well, and he'll stand up and he'll talk about this wonderful thing that he did and that wonderful thing that he did and would you like to see the list of all the things that I did this year and you know, and I wrote this book and I did this and this. And people think that it's so egoic. 
But he's he's like a, a child reporting these things that happened because his inner experience of it is just that the grace came through and that's what happened. Now that's the antidote to Maya. Because Maya is the, the limited sense of personal identity that I am the doer. And as long as you have that, Swami writes that in other, in other places, you know, even a, even a very good person, even a very good spiritual person, if they're still thinking of themselves as the one who is doing those good actions, they're still bound. Only when that sense of, of personal doership, so to speak, which is a very awkward phrase, is not merely suppressed or disciplined, but actually non-existent. Because the feeling has been superconscious coming, superconsciousness coming through, and that's the antidote to maya. And once we're, we're out of maya, then, every, then success is, is effortless. And true success is really ours. And you know, that's how Rajasi Janakananda said, well, I have to meditate all morning because I have so many important decisions to make. I have to make sure that my consciousness is entirely centered in the infinite and then whatever comes to me will just come out of that superconscious flow and it won't be any difficulty at all. And it also says it dissolves our worldly tendencies. It doesn't merely um, suppress them. It actually takes the vrittis in the spine away. And once the vrittis in the spine are gone, it's just not there anymore. Swami talks later in this chapter, which we'll talk after our break, about you know, just that up and down flow of energy, and really that's where the source of it comes. So our good habits can only help by setting our feet on the upward path. Superconsciousness accomplishes the actual transformation. It's, a, it's a just that, that whole thing is so powerful to contemplate because it's the... It's the way to direct our consciousness whenever things are not going the way we want them to go. Not merely, we do it devotionally, calling on Master, but it's also an actual lifting of our own awareness above the ups and downs. And he goes in then to talk about the currents in the spine and centering in the spine and mastering the currents in the spine as being the way to get through that door of superconsciousness. So let's, it's a little bit early, but let's take a little break and then we'll go into that, okay? The, there's a few interesting just characteristics about superconsciousness and how this sort of works. There's a story in, from Swamiji's own life, which is, he, he, I, I put this in my book, but I'll put the pieces together here. When he talks about his childhood, he talks about the fact that, you know, when he was a young boy up until the age of nine, when he became quite ill, he lived more really in the... He was only half on the planet. He was as much in the astral world as he was here, is sort of how he put it. Or he, he remembered the astral world so vividly. This world always seemed a little bit not quite as real to him as, as the, the realm he came from. And when he was young, he used to go to sleep by closing his eyes and then this light would appear in his consciousness and it would expand until he merged into it and that's how he went to sleep this is like one line in the path and he, it was so natural to him he thought that's how everyone went to sleep he didn't know that that wasn't what everyone else was doing when they closed their eyes then when he was nine he um, became very unwell and he had a high fever and he became delirious and 
he became suspicious of altered states of consciousness. And also the other side of it, which he didn't write about as much, was he was getting old enough to realize that he was not like everyone else. And he, at first, as he, as he describes it in his autobiography, it became obvious to him because he, he and his father were not, had such a different point of view on life. And it, he began to think that his father's point of view was the view he had to adapt. He became concerned about his singularity. And when he coupled with the fever, where the altered state of consciousness was a little frightening in his delirium, he decided to repudiate, you know, that other world, so to speak. And he gradually lost the um, habit or the ability to go into that light. And then from nine until the age of 22 were very difficult years as he sort of struggled to find his place in the world. And that was all the story that he tells of having sent to Switzerland and being sick and going away to boarding schools and the awful experiences in America. And then he finally meets Master, becomes a disciple, finds his place, and then through Master's influence, the Swami describes it, he, 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 and this he tells in a talk that he gave once, he found himself through meditation merging into that light again. And the interesting statement was is that as soon as he went into that, what he called that state of superconsciousness, he said it was exactly as he had remembered it, he it was experiencing exactly what he experienced as a child. And here's the interesting part. No time had passed. He said it was the same moment as it had been when he was a child. I mean, I, where does the mind go with that? It was the same moment because the element of time was a factor of this world. And as soon as he stepped out of this world, he was out of the element of time and he was into the eternal now. It was not only the same experience, it was the same moment. Now, um, in another context, Swamiji, um, at a satsang he gave, um, was talking about how when the soul finally attains liberation and and perfect freedom and we've broken our ego identity and we're lifted up, we've vanished the veils of light and shade and, and we're in super consciousness... And we can look back over all these literally millions of lifetimes, untold period of time. The only things that that will that will actually perceive out of the mist is those moments of, of when we stood in the presence of God, of pure superconsciousness. And everything else will be perceived at that point to have never actually have happened. That's the strangest thing, isn't it? And that's why the saints never think it was unfair because it never actually happened. You know, if you think that somebody has stolen your purse and then you realize that you just misplaced it and they didn't steal it at all, you're not upset with them anymore for stealing it because they never stole it. You just thought they stole it because you didn't know where it was. But once you find it, you can't be mad at them anymore because they never did it. And so we have all this experience of how we suffer, how we struggle, how it's so hard to know what to do, how we're so anxious about this, how we have so much pain about that, so much resentment, disappointment, all of these things which we're all seemingly going through because they're real, on, on the dream is real as a dream. And while we're in it, we're experiencing it just exactly like being asleep. When it, it happens in your sleep. But while it's happening, it's happening. 
And it doesn't stop happening until we wake up from it. And then it, it vaporizes because it was only held together by that state of consciousness that was holding it together. So this state of consciousness that holds all these experiences together, the, 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 the state of consciousness that experiences these events as personally related to us and ego-defined, that's the state of consciousness. When we move out of that state of consciousness, we, you know, it was all just oscillating waves of light and shade just doing their thing, and we can, Master also says, you know, that you remember back through all those incarnations, but only superconscious moments remain. It's really, it's really, um, and therefore, and this is, you know, to try to ground this whole discussion, which is a little bit above the obvious, um, the real success is when we tune in. And, you know, if our goal, if we have to make money, we have to do work, the more superconsciously we do it, the more enduring success there is in what we do, not only outwardly, but also because we're then touching into something that is actually real. And, you know, Master gives us a world, God gives us a world. God gives us a world in which we're not allowed to just sit back. We have to work. And it's hard to work. It's hard to make enough money to live. It's not an easy thing. And it takes so much of our time and so much of our concentration. So what Swami's writing here, and he's, he, it's about meditation, but he said, meditation is integral to your success. Don't think that, well, I have to do business, I don't have time to meditate. Or I meditate so I don't have to do business. I mean, it all works together. It's like the good habit invites superconsciousness in. And then when we go about our daily lives, the, we have a way of returning to that. And that's then what he writes in here about, you know, when we make a habit of meditation. And he writes, you, you know, it's only the habit of being physically and mentally restless that makes it hard for us to meditate. We're just in the habit of being so restless that meditation is difficult. But he says in two paragraphs, persevere and gradually you'll calm down. (laughs) You know, it's like one of those things like how many incarnations are you really talking about? But persevere and gradually you'll calm down. And then he, he just encourages us then to consider the meditative practice of inwardly centering ourselves to be absolutely fundamental to everything that we try to do. Because as long as our consciousness is clouded by the ups and down oscillation of all this maya, I mean, just almost literally, how can you see clearly when everything is moving like this in front of you? You know, when we, when we want to see something, we, 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 we calm it down and we still it, don't we? Even if you're really concentrating on trying to do something, sometimes you'll even hold your breath. You know, sometimes photographers know they have to hold their breath um, in order to not move the camera, or the, is it the is it the biathletes, or those the ones who ski and shoot rifles? I mean, part of the hardest thing about that is that they've just exerted themselves so physically, and then in order to be able to shoot accurately, they have to be able to completely control the agitation of the breath in the moment. Because, and, and it's not merely the physical 
jostling of it, but agitated breath is a sign of agitated mind. I don't mean physically exerted breath so much, but you know the breath, and this is Swami writes, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail, although he goes into it in wonderful detail here, you know, that the the upward and downward moving energy in the spine is the causative force for the breath. And the upward and downward moving energy in the spine, I mean, the overall direction of energy in the spine is what, when, when the upward lifted flow of energy, when the energy is higher in the chakras, our perception is more subtle and our mood is uplifted. And when that the mood sinks and our perception sinks, it's because we've lost control of the energy and it's sinking lower. He always uses children to illustrate this because children are so physical about it. We saw this little boy just when we were away recently and he was, he was standing next to a friend and he was leaning over the table and he didn't really need to be on his toes but he was so excited about what was happening that he was standing about as high up on his toes almost like a ballet dancer because he just needed physically to you know to show the energy moving up because that's what he was feeling just so much in him and you see kids like that the energy is going up i mean there's still there's still a circulating energy because they're still breathing they're both inhaling and exhaling but the magnetism of that circular breath is all uplifting. And of course, when children get upset about things, they tend to throw themselves on the ground. And you know, and you have to pick up that, you know, that completely limp child. And you know, that picture, that picture of the child being dragged by the limp elbow and the feet pulling on the ground, you know, it's just like everything is going down and backwards. And, and we're more uh, contained about it, but it's actually really just the same reality. And so Swamiji is explaining to us that when we meditate and concentrate at the spiritual eye, what we're doing is we're magnetizing the overall upward movement of energy. We're interiorizing the circulating in an up and down flow of the ear and the pingala going up and down like this. And, And when the energy, when the that conscious inner force gets very strong, then it, it pulls our attention inward. It becomes, it becomes the magnet that, that calms our body and our mind. That's why you just, you just start, and he teaches the whole Hong Sa technique in this lesson, which is very interesting, very simply. He just teaches it. Concentrate on the breath. And at the same time, do the mantra. And he explains, you know, it's a bij mantra, which is to say, the sound of the mantra itself helps accomplish the goal of the practice because the sound of the mantra is the sound of, of consciousness inward. And so it's, it's, the meaning is, is helpful, but it's actually just the vibration of the sound interiorizes the energy. And the more we, we practice being inwardly conscious in this simple exercise of watching the breath flow up and down with the bij mantra, the more the magnetic circle of that up and down breath becomes in itself a positive vritti, becomes a positive, and then the, everything is drawn deeper and deeper inward into that simple fact of breath itself. And then, of course, Breath is 
the key to our consciousness, and so gradually our consciousness moves even deeper than breath. And he speaks in here of breathlessness. Breathlessness is very natural, he says, because as soon as we're interiorized deeply enough, it's the energy that we need. The breath is the the grossest expression of it. We can bring ourselves just into the energy and the physical organism remains without it having to be so outward in its awareness. Now, that's the deepest invitation to superconsciousness to enter into us. The more profoundly still we are, the more the invitation goes out in neon letters. And that inspiration comes into us. And once that inspiration comes into us and we're out of maya, we're, we're work, living in the antidote of maya, then it's self-evident what the flow ought to be. Success, I mean, this is the statement that Swami made a long time ago that I, it's, a, it's an amazing statement, you know, lack of success is lack of harmony with the divine. Success is when you're in harmony with the divine. Meaning if we're moving from superconsciousness, then everything will come in the way it's meant to come. I, the, where I always sort of just get a little mentally confused on that one is that, you know, not everything comes out perfectly well because some things are just not destined to happen. But I think the success he's describing is that we're always where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, and God takes care of us. Because pain is the fruit of self-love, joy is the fruit of love for God. All of these realities just resolve themselves. So he's strongly urging us to recognize that no success is possible without inward consciousness because no success is possible without attunement with superconsciousness. So even within ourselves, just like Rajasi, to just recognize that our power is within and the, the uh, regular balanced practice of meditation and calling on that in our everyday life and recognizing how not only appropriate but how that's God's intention for us that we should call on that and use that in everything that we do. It's, it's something we train ourselves into. Um, but it, it's certainly the thing to do. Okay, does that make sense? You know, it's a really simple reality but sometimes the simplest, the truths are the simplest. Okay. Yes. So this is just a little confusing for me. Um, okay. So you're saying that um, no success is possible without superconsciousness, and yet there surely must be levels of success. Um, I don't think I've really experienced superconsciousness. I may have experienced great states of calmness and steps along the process and have had what I consider successful times of my life. So it's a little confusing to me in terms of there's no success without... Oh, well, it's, super, it's directional. So it's directional. It's so directional. it's like we, we progress, we have more experiences of being right. successful as we move in that direction. And, you know, success is... Real success is, is building right consciousness that enables us to have mastery over our energy. And then, if we direct, and then whatever we direct that energy toward, we're able to 
to be successful in the sense that we can master it. I mean, that's why people who are creative and talented in one area are often able to just direct that into something else. You know, if they were a very good actor, they might suddenly become a really good painter. If they're a very good singer, you know, they might suddenly become a good writer, even if they've never done that before, but because the basic elements of how to concentrate and succeed are within them. And the more, the more we have developed whatever we've developed through a sense of attunement and not just a sense of, and not just the stress of ego, um, the, the more our success is based on a sense of attunement, the more it's an enduring success regardless of whether the waves of Maya go up and down. And anybody who succeeds at all has in some way or another tapped into the same principles. You don't have to know it. I mean, even people who are evil often are using these same principles because that's where they get their power from, but then they, they, they distort it. Um, but there, you know, there'll be something that'll cause it to crash until it purifies. And you know, long before one comes onto the spiritual path, sometimes you just look back and you, there's just a sense of having been guided. There were moments when you did things that you didn't know why you did them. Um, Nidruva, um, who is a Harvard-trained attorney, and was absolutely critical to our years of um, litigation. And she just really helped us many years ago, when at the t- at a time at, at the appropriate moment, after she graduated from college, she just felt she had to go to law school. She'd never thought about going to law school. It just came to her absolutely ir- ir- um, irrefutably that she had to go to law school. So she did. She went to law school, and um, then she went and worked for Martin Luther King for a while. Um, She worked in the north, not in the south, but she worked in the courts, helping him, and so she always thought that was the reason. Um, But then when this came up, and she'd stopped being a lawyer by then, but her legal training, she went back into it for nearly a decade. But you know, just things roll along. You just don't really know why and how. But that's that's the the super conscious success that you're just watching that the decisions were made and things unfolded the way they had to unfold. Things happen the way they had to happen. And thoughts come to us. See, it's coming to us all the time. We're just uh, not accustomed to giving the credit where the credit is due. And so we don't maximize it, and then sometimes we lose it because we take it to ourselves, and then we start the whole ego cycle all over again. And then the other side of it, it, there's degrees. Like Donovan and Swami Kriyananda got the same first line, you know, but then his song peters out and Swami's doesn't. It's not that his song is nice, but it's not great. There's no greatness in it. it um, because it petered out. He didn't have the strength. But they got the same first line. That's, isn't that fascinating? <laughs> okay, any other questions or thoughts? All right. Yes, Sarah? Was it? Okay, what... Of course, that's it. That's exactly what I described. What Sarah just described is having a problem, being very stressed, and praying, saying to Master, you've got to help me. And then all of a sudden, an intuition comes. It's 100% of what I just said. I was there. I couldn't do any of the recording. I said, Master, if you want this recording, do something. You invite. As long as, long as we're content without God, God just waits because he won't interfere. That's the freedom of the human mind. If you're a dog, you'll just be nudged on. Regardless, but once you're a human being, you get to say no, thank you, 
And then if you say, no, thank you, God says, okay. And then we just get to keep doing it. And then Satan tells us, gosh, it almost worked. You know, really, you were very, very close. All you need is just to make a few little changes, then it'll be fine. So we incarnate time and time again, not realizing that it's an impossible problem. And then there comes a point where we say, help. That's the piglet prayer. That's from the story of Piglet and Pooh being lost in the fog. They went out for a walk and they got lost in the fog and they didn't know where they were. And they, were, they didn't know how to get back. And Piglet just, you know, just becomes very despairing because Piglet doesn't have a lot of fortitude. Piglet becomes very despairing and sort of, you know, collapses in the fog. And then the only thing Piglet could think up to do was to raise its little head and say, Help! Like that! And then it just collapsed again. And of course someone heard and they found Piglet and Pooh and they were just very close to where they needed to be but they didn't know that at that time. But that's what I call the Piglet prayer which is even when you're collapsed in the fog just raise your head enough to cry out Help! And that'll work. It does. (laughs) I'm very fond of that prayer. It served me very well. (laughs) You don't have to be literate. You don't have to be elegant. You don't have to be articulate. You just have to be sincere. I really think there's no more sincere prayer than the piglet prayer. And I think that's probably a good ending for this class. I don't think we can do better than that. Okay, thank you all very much. Okay, on to lesson eight, whatever that might be next week.